We are continuing our series, A Church United. And before we end next week with racism, I can't believe how quickly, how quickly we've gone through this series. Today we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about sexism. I've deliberately chosen to not use a main text this morning. Instead, so we can have the freedom to move from the Old Testament and into the New Testament scriptures. So I'm going to pray and then we'll be in. We'll dive right in. Father, we need your help this morning. We need your guidance. We need the leading of the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to our eyes and to our ears. We want to understand. We want to mine the scriptures for truth. We want to believe and obey what it says. Father, would you deconstruct the systems of sexism in our world and in the church? Father, we want to be pure. We want to be holy. We want to treat each other in the way that you've created us to do. And so, Father, we need your help. We need your presence to fill this place. We experience your presence in worship. We know that in the midst of the preaching of the word, it's your presence that changes us. Let your presence come, your Holy Spirit, and speak to our hearts. If there's any wicked thing in any of us, would you deal with those areas today? Lord, free us so that we can serve you with our whole heart, with our mind, with our strength with all of our soul. Lord, we want to honor you with our lives. Build your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen, amen. Sexism has always been one of the wars within culture, but it's also been one of the wars within church. And men have profited for their gender, while women have been discriminated for their gender. There are two terms that I feel are really important for me to share with you today. And the first one is complementarianism. Complementarianism is a theological concept that advocates that men and women have different authority and roles in the church. They defend the headship of males over women in the areas of particular of pastoring and preaching. Women can only spiritually instruct women. They cannot instruct men. And if Jesus is the head of the church, so too then men should be head of women. The criticism against this concept has been the spiritual abuse that we have seen against women, where pastors uh, in authority or people in places of authority treat people in a very oppressive manner. The other view is this, egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is a theological concept that advocates that men and women can have equal authority and equal roles in the church. See, women can teach men as pastors just as much as men can teach women as pastors. Men and women are made equal because God is no respecter of persons, because of Christ's equalizing work, and because of the same spirit that empowers both men and women. For ministry. The criticism against this concept has been the tendency for the church to follow the current of culture and its fight for liberation from all repressive and oppressive systems. I'm really proud to say today that WPA is an egalitarian church. I'm proud of our Pentecostal heritage. I'm proud of who we are. I'm proud of those who broke those systems. And I'm proud of those who continue to break those systems today, those gender barriers. Just look at the pastoral staff here at WPA, and you'll notice that there are more female pastors than male pastors. And if, in, in, in all reality, in all honesty, I want to let you know that I didn't hire all of them. 
and neither did I keep them on staff to make a point to protect myself from being accused of sexism. Each of them have been called by God. Each of them have been anointed by the Holy Spirit to serve WPA for such a time as this. And so I publicly affirm before all of you today the ministry of Pastor Kim and the ministry of Pastor Kathy and the ministry of Pastor Gloria and the ministry of Pastor Sharon and the ministry of Pastor Crystal Lynn. They deserve to be honored. They deserve to be respected. And we honor them and we respect them just as you would to Pastor Daniel and Pastor Andrew and myself. So this morning, I want you to see the gender conversation from three points of view. I want you to see it from God's point of view. I want you to see it from Jesus' point of view. And I want you to see it from the church's point of view. The first point this morning is gender equality is God's way. Gender equality is God's way. We look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. The scripture says that God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Every time you and I read scripture, there is a temptation to get caught up with the nuance of the words that we read. We forget That what we have today in the Bible, in English, is a translation of Latin, which is a translation of Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. And so as you might have already learned, the Bible does not always use what we consider to be gender-inclusive language. Let's just be honest about that from the very beginning. Nevertheless, I truly believe that the Bible is countercultural. The Bible is not chauvinistic in practices like the ancient Near Eastern world was in which this Bible was originally written to and written in the context of. So, for example, let's consider this word mankind, which is used twice in this passage. This was likely written by Moses. And I truly believe that Moses actually meant humankind when he said mankind because he referred to God creating both male and female. You can, tell, you can call that semantics, you can call that a personal opinion, but you need to read what precedes and proceeds the portion of Scripture to establish the context before you take offense. See, manhood and womanhood both share a common identity sourced in the image of God. No less of the image of God, no more of the image of God, the same image of God. So why do we have two creation accounts, one about the world and then one about humanity? There is a reason why Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 2. There have been some sexist interpretations of Genesis chapter 2. According to Genesis 2 verse 7, Adam was made first. And according to Genesis 2 22, Eve was made second from out of Adam's own rib. And while the scripture is telling us God's process for creating, it does does not necessarily elevate one gender over the other gender. 
In fact, as we read in the scripture, God equally blessed them, both male and female. Now, I understand this is a biblical statement of gender, and it seems limited in comparison to the various options that we hear of and we read of in the world, which provides a spectrum of genders and orientations. I believe the Word of God. Do you believe the Word of God? I believe that God was clear when He chose our gender. But many have taken the liberty to disagree with God. They've chosen a different gender. They choose their own orientation. They choose their own identity. But here today, I make no apologies for God's explicit clarity in His Word. I'm not going to apologize for that because this is God's Word. And He tells us what is truth and what is untruth. His reasoning for creating male and female is driven by his own creation mandate. You see, male and female can only procreate together. God saw a male isolated world as incomplete. In Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The helper is in no way subordinate or of a lower status, but was strategic in addressing God's creation mandate to subdue the earth. King Solomon, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 to 12, he outlines the benefits of two over one. Listen to what he says. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. You see, God makes no allowance for sexism in his creation. Therefore, the church ought to be above reproach in this area. The equality of men and women is not a correction. It is not an afterthought. It was and is part of God's divine design. It's just the way it is. Second point this morning is gender equality is Jesus' way. Gender equality is Jesus' way. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Jumping into the New Testament. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. The Bible is a revolutionary book because of Jesus, because of his ministry, through which he intentionally raised the value of women in a countercultural way. The way of the culture is not the way of the kingdom. You see, the way of the kingdom is often counterculture. In this patriarchal society, in the Bible, Jesus did not only have 12 disciples, his male disciples, but he also had additional female disciples. You might consider them part of the entourage. Once again, words can lead us into misinterpretations. Verse 2 specifies that these were women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. 
Now, this can all of a sudden give us the impression that these women were second-rate people in comparison to the relatively healthy and whole male disciples. But that wasn't the case. We can't overlook the contribution of these women to Jesus' ministry. These men had given up their careers like fishing and tax collecting to follow Jesus. But likewise, these women used their wages to help fund Jesus' ministry. Jesus needed them. Jesus used them strategically for ministry. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and many other women are the unsung heroines behind Jesus' ministry. On an earlier occasion, the same Mary Magdalene interrupted Jesus' meal with Simon the Pharisee with an extravagant act of worship. Jesus was criticized for allowing this woman to come and clean his feet with perfume, using her hair and her tears and kissing his feet. And she was identified as a woman who lived a sinful life. Such an interaction was inappropriate, especially for the undefiled rabbi like Jesus. And in Luke 7, to 46, we read, Then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Jesus is asking you today, can you see the people culture ignores? Jesus is asking you today, can you see the people that religion ignores? In a sexist world, can you see both men and women? Jesus showed Simon the Pharisee that both her gender and her past could not limit her from the presence of Jesus. From being forgiven, from being restored publicly into community. She had offered Jesus the hospitality that Simon the Pharisee did not even think of offering Jesus. The same entourage of women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection, They're all over Scripture. You just have to look for them. Before the 12 disciples saw the tomb empty on the day of the resurrection of Jesus, the female followers were the ones who saw the tomb empty. Luke 24, 1 to 11 reports, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners and be crucified on the third day to be raised again? Then they remembered his words. And when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women. Because their words seemed to be like nonsense. 
Were the 11 disciples, the 11 apostles, were they sexist? Maybe, maybe not. I think they were all friends and followers of Jesus. Though Jesus has told his disciples about the resurrection many times, their grief had overcome their hope. They were in hiding, not knowing how to move forward with life and with ministry. God had entrusted the message of the resurrection to the female disciples who in turn told the male disciples. Isn't that amazing? The the inadequacy is not with the message of the female disciples, but with the comprehension of the male disciples. The males couldn't get it. The females got it. This entourage of female disciples shows us that Jesus was impartial, and he chose both men and women to follow him and to build his kingdom, both men and women. Thirdly today, gender equality is the church's way. Gender equality is the church's way. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 28. The scripture says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, in the letter to the Galatians, One of the things that the Apostle Paul confronted was legalism, aside from a false gospel that others were preaching. A Jewish Old Testament system was being superimposed on a new Christian New Testament community. And he combated an oppressive theology that elevated justification by being made right with God through our works instead of by faith alone. And this meant that Paul needed to correct the Galatians by giving Jesus Christ preeminence above everything. The Apostle Paul began by saying to all the Galatians then and to saying to all of us now that in Christ we are all children. I want you to recognize that today if you're in Christ, your identity is child of God. And this equalized status comes through faith, confidently believing and confessing that Jesus is Lord of your life. Furthermore, not only are we children, but we are baptized into Christ and we're clothed in Christ. This is not so much about what phrase we use when we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or in the name of Jesus, but it's what baptism itself represents. It symbolically represents our death in Christ and our resurrection in Christ. We are then clothed not with our own righteousness, but with his righteousness. Then the Apostle Paul, he moved into what I call his neither nor statements, his neither nor list. And he touched on gender by addressing both male and female. This does not mean that the Apostle Paul was advocating for a genderless society. Neither was he advocating for a choose-your-own-gender. And gender issues are not uniquely characteristic of the 21st century. In fact, it was the Roman Empire more than 2,000 plus years ago that were strongly in favor of the identities and orientations of today's LGBTQ plus movement. They were endorsing it. It was public news for everyone to know and to participate in. Instead, the Apostle Paul, what did he do? 
He strongly believed that Jesus had transformed the social categories and the labels the world had used to divide people. That's what he did. He took off the labels. In Christ, we share a unity unlike any other in the world. And it is God who makes us one. And it is God who keeps us one through his son, Jesus. Therefore, there is no place for gender oppression within the church, within this church. Amen? See, gender equality is not something for which we advocate because of a movement in our society, but it's because the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells us so. I understand. As we read the scriptures, there are some scriptures that cause us to think otherwise. For example, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35 instructs, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak must be in submission, as the law says. And if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Ah, those are hard words. Now, how much of the scripture is command, and how much of the scripture is culture? Well, this is the inspired word of God, isn't it? We must look at it very more carefully And look at the specific context behind why the Apostle Paul is limiting women to speak in this context in Corinth. See, in the world, content is king, but in the biblical world, context is king. We must remember that the letters to the Corinthians were written to correct spiritual spiritual malpractice in the church. There were women who were speaking out of order in this church, and Paul had to come and give some instructions so that they would not have worship that was out of order. Another difficult example we find in 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 14, and it provides a strong comment concerning women teaching. Starting in verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who deceived and became a sinner. Oh, man, all the blame on Eve. Adam ate that apple out of his own free will. All the women said amen. Okay, You see, some will perceive the word permit as a command, while others will see it as a personal opinion. The Apostle Paul, he doesn't give the explicit disclaimer of opinion that he gave when he talked about married life in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, and 7, verse 12. He says in this scripture, and I really appreciate how he does this, he says, not I, but the Lord. He's giving some instruction But he's saying, not I, I'm not telling you, but the Lord tells you. In another instance, he says, I, but not the Lord. I'm telling you this, I prefer this opinion, but this is not what the Lord is making the rule of the land. So is this the Lord's opinion then, or is this Paul's opinion? I personally believe with my whole heart, I want to weigh the scriptures and evaluate it in in, in its entirety. I believe that this was Paul's personal opinion. It's a permission. He might not permit it himself, but Peter and John might permit it. One of the two brackets in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 12, 
might have solved a lot of interpretive problems for us, for the church at large, as we interpret 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35, and 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14. But then all of you are wondering, Paul was single, wasn't he? Did Paul's singleness have anything to do with this? Well, that deserves a whole sermon on its own, of course. But I think that the Apostle Paul, he saw the pros of being single, and he made people aware of the cons of being married. I think that's what he does in Scripture for us. He tells us the pros and cons. There's benefits, but there's also some uh, other things, additional details that you need to know if you're going to be married and what that means in serving God. He might appear sexist on the pages of Scripture, but I don't think that's his real intention. I don't think that's what he's trying to do. My point is this, that instead of ignoring these hard scriptures and pretending that they do not exist, we must address them and allow them to draw us into deeper exploration of what the whole Bible is saying about gender. Don't just read one scripture, one little fraction of that pie. Look at the whole grand narrative. Look at what God is doing in salvation history and then make sense of this topic. As we conclude this morning, there are some terrible stories in the Bible. I'm not going to deny it. We see how sexism left unchecked leads to dehumanization. Perhaps one of the worst examples we find in the Bible is found in Judges 19. You might know this story. You might be familiar. Probably most of us have turned the page over it because we like to pretend it doesn't exist. It's the story of a Levite a man set apart to serve God. And he has this unnamed concubine who is gang-raped by wicked men. And then the Levite cuts her body into 12 pieces and sends her remains to different parts of Israel as a symbolic statement of the spiritual decay of the times. Now, this scripture is meant to be repulsive. It is meant to make you uncomfortable and squeamish because it brings us to terms with the moral decay during the time of the judges. This is what happens when God's people don't live in right relationship with God. Judges 21-25 ends with a recapitulation of the book's main point. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. You see what happens when Jesus is not king of our lives? When, if Jesus is Lord of your life, you will treat men and women the same. But when Jesus is not Lord of your life, you will treat people differently. Why is this story of all stories included in the Bible? Why did the Lord allow this to happen? Is this type of gruesome behavior condoned by our God? Apologist Joe Vitale gives us an alternative perspective. Listen to her words. Even though her rapists don't see her, even though the Levite doesn't see her, even though God's own people fail to properly see her, God will not allow this woman to go unseen. Instead, he puts her story front and center in Judges 19. He immortalizes her and immortalizes what happens in Scripture, and therefore he ensures that it will be witnessed down the centuries until even thousands of years later, we're still talking about it. See, the God we serve is not a sexist God. He made both male and female in his image and in his likeness, and he called it good. 
But to the man or the woman who has experienced sexism in this place today and in this world outside, I want to tell you today that you serve a God who sees you. This God sees you. Whether you're in an abusive relationship, God sees you. Whether you're being oppressed in the workplace and not given opportunities, I want you to know that God sees you. No matter what the situation is, men and women alike, God sees you. Men are not greater than women. Women are not weaker than men. While we are distinct and unique and wonderfully made, we are created equal by God. And here's the thing. We're redeemed equally by Christ. You see, in the beginning, we can say creation was good. But something happened. The fall happened. And everything got twisted and out of order. And that is why we need Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, to come and to redeem us and to redeem our relationships, to redeem our perspectives. Allow him to change our lives. So while we're distinct, we're created equal by God. And at the same time, we're redeemed as equal by Christ. Let's pray.